Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. About heavy metal. Okay? We're going to talk about heavy metal this morning. Unfortunately, not the music. And so, we're going to talk this morning about copper alloys, which is what you all came for. I mean, you know, who does not come to church on Sunday morning going, ah, yes, let's talk a little bit about copper alloys. Nevertheless, uh, it's significant this morning to the passage that we're going to be reading. In the ancient Near East, Uh, finding an alloy, finding other metals to merge together with copper was incredibly significant. It was like a huge technical revolution. In fact, when they created bronze, which is making copper and tin together, it was the rough equivalent of AI. Like the way that we think of AI and like, wow, that's the That's the big new tech. That's a thing that's happening. That was bronze to them. In fact, we call the entire period in the ancient Near East the Bronze Age. If your civilization had bronze or could get to bronze, your civilization was happening. The Mesopotamians had it. The the Egyptians had to get it from other people. The Greeks had it. And so bronze becomes the technology that runs the world. Well, if mixing copper with tin is good, what else can we mix copper with? And so they learned that if you mix copper with zinc, I don't know how that happens, you can start making brass, which the whole point of making brass uh, in the ancient Near East is so that you could create brass instruments, which is how you could form your ancient Near Eastern ska bands. We come this morning to the city of Thyatira. The city of Thyatira was famous for two things. The first thing uh, that they were famous for was making brass or bronze alloys. The second thing that they were famous for was getting taken over and conquered just about every five minutes. It was in the middle of a plain, and it was this small sort of town where they were really good at making bronze, but really bad at defending themselves. And so anytime the Persians or anybody from the the East would come in to conquer Greece, the first place they would conquer is Thyatira. Anytime the Greeks or the Romans would want to go fight against the Persians, guess where they would go to set their garrison up and conquer? A town called Thyatira. Sits in the middle of the plain. It's like Omaha, Nebraska, just in the middle of nowhere, Wheat fields, soybean fields, as far as the eye can see. And yet, every time they would rebuild, they would have to figure out a way to make themselves useful to the conquering armies. And so what they did was they figured out how to make really good bronze, how to make really good brass. It became world famous. In fact, we're told that the city of Thyatira had the best bronze in the entire world. But there's this one weird thing. We have no idea why the bronze that was made in Thyatira was any better than anyone else's because it got conquered so often and buried and swept over that we just have records of other people saying, wow, 
There used to be this town over there that made good bronze. Don't know what made it good, but they were really good at it. Who knows? And in fact, all of the archaeology we have is, is stunted by the fact that about 500 years ago, the Ottoman Empire built another city over top of what used to be Thyatira. So if you want to go out looking for artifacts and reasons why Thyatira is special, you have to knock down some guy named Jim's house in order to get there, which people aren't super excited about. All of the secrets of the town of Thyatira are buried just below the surface. And that's an interesting focus for us as well because the sins of Thyatira were buried under the surface as well. They looked good on the outside. They had a surface level that was good. But inside, this church was dying because of the sins that it was harboring in the dark. Sexual immorality and materialism that were pretending to be Christianity were killing this church from the inside out. And that's, that's kind of where we can see ourselves this morning. There isn't a single one of us who would not be absolutely terrified if there was a machine that could read our minds and tell it to everyone else around us. We all harbor quiet thoughts, the quiet things that no one ever knows that we wouldn't want another soul to hear at all. Whether it's our lust, our bitterness, our greed, or our ambition, every single one of us struggles with the thoughts that entertain our minds. And Jesus is not shocked by this, but he's not happy either. So what I want us to do is see what Jesus has to say to the church at Thyatira and see what that might mean for us. So if you are able, I would invite you to stand as I read God's word. I'm going to be read, reading Revelation 2, 18 through 29. The words will be on the screen behind me so you can follow along. Let's hear Jesus' letter to this church. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But this I have against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works." And I will strike dead her children. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, do not, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." 
City Church is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. This letter to the church at Thyatira is the longest of any of the seven letters that we are going to be studying as we go through this series. And yet it is contrasted by the fact that, as I mentioned before, this is the town that we know the least about. We do not have a ton of records to draw from. But one of the things that we can see in this letter that is incredibly clear is that Jesus is referencing Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm, a psalm that is written about Jesus. And in that psalm, Jesus is called the Son of God. And you see that that is picked up on as Jesus introduces himself to this church. He introduces himself first as the son of God. And as he begins to describe himself, what he says is that I have eyes like a flaming fire. Now, obviously, this is not Jesus saying that he has a very nice smoky eye look going. Rather, this is Jesus saying that what he can see is more than what anyone else can see. In fact, later on in the passage, if you listened, it said that he searches our hearts and our minds. Jesus knows everything about us, down to our thoughts, down to the level of our desires. And it's a little bit shocking because when Jesus introduces himself, he introduces himself first as the one who knows all things in our hearts, and second as the one who stands in judgment over us. It's interesting. It says that his feet are like burnished brass. What's funny is there's nowhere else in Greek antiquity where this phrase burnished brass or burnished bronze is used. That's why almost if you have a different translation um, of the Bible, almost all of them have brass or bronze because the end of the day, we don't exactly know what this metal was. We don't know, but it seems that the people of Thyatira know it seems that they know because Jesus wouldn't tell them something that they'd all be looking around going, what, what is this guy talking about? No, they're aware. And it seems pretty clear that this is the sort of brass or bronze that has made Thyatira famous. It's the sort of thing that they are able to sort of create that no one else is able to create. Jesus knows every thought that crosses our mind before we go to bed, when our mind drifts off in the middle of our workday, when we have just a second to think, he knows. And he tells that to the church at Thyatira, and he tells that to us as well. And not only does he know, but what we do know is whatever these boots are made of, they're made of a special kind of metal. That means he's dressed in armor. That means Jesus is presenting himself in a little bit of an ominous way. I mean, as you read this, if you just read this description of Jesus, it begins a little bit terrifying because think about it. The one who can see into your soul is coming with feet clad with metal. And yet, that is how we live before God. That is the truth of each one of our situations. And you would expect that if Jesus begins this intense, that he's probably not got a lot of good things to say to the church, right? If Jesus from the jump says, I know everything in your soul and I got my boots on, you would think that he would then immediately jump to all the bad stuff, but he doesn't. He doesn't. He gives them praise. 
He says, look, I know that you have genuine love for one another. I know that you have faith in my resurrection, in my gospel. And not only that, you serve one another, you serve your city well, and you do all of this with patient endurance. And to ratchet things up another level, he says, and you've been getting better at all of this. Your latter works are better than your first. You're doing better now than you were years ago. And on the outside looking in, that's pretty good. I I wouldn't mind it if Jesus said to me, hey, you're doing a great job with love, great job with faith, Patiently enduring things in your life, you got that going on, you're serving others well, and you're better off than you were before. I'll take it, right? That's not too bad, especially if he's the one with eyes like fire who can see into my soul. And yet, there's a little bit of this commendation that's left lacking. I mean, it's, it's kind of vague, isn't it? I mean, they're, they're doing just like nice general things that Christians should do. They're, they're not pointed out, they don't point out, Jesus doesn't point out to them some specific things. If you scratch below the surface, this is brief and vague. And we see why as Jesus turns to the problem in the church. In Thyatira, it seems that the problems were emanating from a woman called Jezebel. Now, this is almost certainly not this woman's real name. Just like as we looked at the church of Pergamum last week, they probably were not following a man named Balaam. This is an allusion, an allusion to a character from the Old Testament. And so if you remember sort of some of your Sunday school stories, if you grew up in the church, sort of the, the ones that we like to tell our kids because they keep their attention, Jezebel is a player in a lot of those stories. Any of the times that we read a story about Elijah, the prophet, Jezebel is usually in the wings. She's the one who is sort of Elijah's antagonist. You might remember the story where there's a competition on top of Mount Carmel, which you might remember because Carmel. And there's this competition where there is a kind of a battle of sorts between the prophets of Baal and Elijah. And it's a great story and you get to tell it to kids and you even get to show them in the Bible where Elijah mocks the prophets and says, maybe your God is off in the bathroom and that's why he's not answering your prayers. And kids love that. But the person who was bankrolling all 600 of those prophets was Jezebel. The person who was constantly trying to kill Elijah, Jezebel. And so Jesus uses this character from the Old Testament as a stand-in for this woman who is causing troubles in the church at Thyatira. Because just like the Jezebel in ancient times, the Jezebel in the Old Testament, it seems that this Thyatiran Jezebel is doing something very similar. She is seducing church members and convincing them to practice sexual immorality and worship idols. Now, it's interesting that last week we saw these same two sins pointed out the church at Pergamum, but the order was reversed. It seems from the way that Jesus and John are putting these letters together that the prominence of sexual sin in the church at Thyatira was the real problem. So let's stop for just a second because this is a little strange. I mean, th- think about this for just a second. There's a female t- teacher in the church at Thyatira who is convincing people to abandon the biblical sexual ethic. That seems strange. Seems like the church would figure out a way to have that not happen. So then 
what's going on? There's got to be something more to this story. Why is this, why is this happening? And the text actually shows us why there's more happening here. When Jesus is speaking to those who had not fallen for the ideas that Jezebel was teaching, he says that you haven't fallen for the deep things of Satan. That's the clue. That's the idea that helps us understand what this woman that Jesus is calling Jezebel is actually teaching. As we have mentioned, as we have gone through these different cities, idolatry is a problem in each one of them. In the, in the Greco-Roman world, idols, different gods were everywhere. You were supposed to worship Caesar. You were supposed to worship your local deity. And if you were a member of a trade union, you had a specific god that was for your trade union. And that's the same here in Thyatira. And in Thyatira, because they don't have a significant local god, and because the Romans don't really care about them, the gods that they have to deal with are the gods of the trade unions, the gods of the local guilds. In fact, the reason why we don't know what kind of copper alloy made Thyatira famous is because the guild kept it as a trade secret that they wouldn't tell anybody. If you want to know how to make the secret metal, you have to go and sacrifice to our God, and then we'll teach you to make good metal. But unless you do that, you just get junk metal. You get tinfoil. That's how serious they were. That's why we don't know what kind of metal they made. So in order to be a part of these unions, you had to participate in the worship of their God. And as we've seen before, this would create real problems for followers of Jesus. If Jesus says, you should have no other gods before me, and the head of your union says, you should worship the God of metallurgy, this, this is a problem. This is not an easily solved solution. And so Jezebel was teaching a workaround. Jezebel was teaching a life hack, a secret, because she proclaimed to know a deeper truth. She said that she knew something that no one else did. In fact, the language that Jesus uses, the language of the deep truths, is actually the language that comes from the very first Christian heresy. The very first widespread Christian heresy around the world was called Gnosticism. We don't need to get into the weeds on what that meant, but here's the sort of thumbnail sketch that helps us understand. Gnosticism said, your bodies don't matter, only your soul matters, and that's the secret news of Jesus. That's what Jesus was whispering the whole time is what Gnosticism says. Now think about that. If your bodies don't matter and your souls do, then it doesn't matter what you do with your bodies. You want to go to the temple, commit idolatry? Doesn't matter. Not real gods. You want to go to the temple and participate in the sexual immorality that's a part of those evening dinners? Doesn't matter. Your body doesn't count. And so she was teaching them a false way to follow Jesus. And not only that, because she's called Jezebel, Jezebel was the queen of all of Israel. So it seems that not only was she teaching this, but she was also very likely a high-ranking member of one of these guilds. She was encouraging them to come with her and participate in this sort of sexual revelry. Now, look, I've been at most meetings of city church, and I'm pretty sure no one has ever encouraged you all to go 
commit sexual sin as a part of a ritual to another God. I'm pretty sure that's never been said in a teaching capacity at City Church. And yet, and yet, I think we actually can relate to the motives that are going on underneath of this story. Jezebel's doctrine and practice allowed her followers to keep Jesus and keep their economic standing. At the end of the day, she was a peddler of materialism. How many of us are willing to set aside or pause our faith to make a deal or to keep a job? How many of us have a firewall between our faith and our work life? Jezebel justified her sexual sin by saying God really doesn't care about it, that it's no big deal to him. And how many times do we do the same thing? And the kicker in all of this is that the church at Thyatira just tolerated it. Just let it ride. Yes, they had love, but their love was profoundly naive. Jezebel met the problem of guild worship with the solution of lawlessness and pretending that what we do with our bodies doesn't matter. And so Jesus commands her to repent. But Jesus also commands everybody who had fallen under her spell to repent as well. And he says, I've already given her time. She has already had time to repent and she's refused. So her sickbed has already been made. But to the people that have been deceived by her, Jesus calls them to repentance and says there is still time. He is kind. He is patient. He understands how we can be seduced by smooth talkers who tell us what we want to hear, who present a vision of Christianity that aligns with what I already want to do, who teach us how to compromise to protect the bottom line. Jesus understands that we can fall for people who teach us to justify and minimize our sin. But while he sympathized with us in that temptation, he also unflinchingly calls us to repent. To repent not just of our actions, but of the thoughts of our minds and the desires of our heart. To turn away from the false hope and the settled comfort that seduces us. Beloved, in so many cases, this is us. But Jesus ready stands to receive us back when we return to him, when we see our sin anew, when we see our sin afresh and repent of the ways that we hadn't even realized that we were sinning, he is fully ready to receive us with forgiveness. Think about the words of the hymn that we sang just a couple minutes ago. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you. Full of pity joined with power, He is able, he is able, he is willing. Doubt no more. And when we return to him, Jesus promises the saints at Thyatira and us two things. First, that we will rule with him. As I mentioned before, this uh, letter echoes Psalm chapter 2. And one of the things that Psalm chapter 2 says is not only is Jesus the Son of God, but one day he will rule the nations with an iron rod. And so in this letter, Jesus tells them, it's not just me, but that because you are united to me, we will rule together. Think about that as a citizen of Thyatira this town that is constantly bullied, constantly a ping pong ball in world affairs, Jesus says to the saints of the church at Thyatira, you will rule with me. 
No longer will you be the pygmy, the runt, the picked upon one. With me, we will stand together and rule. But there is a second and even more beautiful thing that Jesus promises to them. Jesus promises them that he will give them the bright morning star, the morning star. And this phrase is only used one other time by John. And the only other time John uses this phrase is when Jesus tells us his name in the book of Revelation. He says, I am the root of Jesse, the son of David, the bright morning star. The gift and blessing of repentance is holding fast to the forgiveness of Christ and getting from it Jesus himself. Yes, we will face hardships. There will be difficult decisions that come our way because of our faith. Our faith will call us out of comfortable places. Yes, our faith will require us to repent of our sins all the way down to the level of our motives. But beloved, our reward for holding fast is Jesus himself. Jesus, who knew everything. It's it's terrifying to think that Jesus, Jesus can look into our souls and know all that goes on in our hearts and minds. But beloved, he already knew. Jesus knew before you ever walked a step on the earth, every thought that would cross your mind. And Jesus still said, I love you so much, I'll die for you. Jesus still said, I love you so much, I will endure the cross, not just begrudgingly, but joyfully. Why? Because I love these people so much. Beloved, that's who we get. That's who Jesus says we are. He knows us completely and loves us utterly. Isn't that a savior worth following? Isn't that a love worth experiencing? I pray this morning that your heart says yes along with mine. Let's pray.